The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for uh, tuning in to the new Spirit Matters, the reboot of the podcast I had co-hosted with uh, Dennis Ramundi for seven years. That um, iteration of the show is now in the past, but the archive lives on. And if you go to spiritmatterstalk.com and the YouTube channel of the same name, you'll find about 300 interviews with uh, extraordinary spiritual teachers and experts of various kinds, including uh, one of today's guests. And uh, so I encourage you to go partake of um, the archive and to subscribe to this new version, which uh, will continue the Spirit Matters tradition of conversations with a diverse range of wise people to uh, help you along your own spiritual path. Today, I'm pleased to have two, two for the price of one, guests. One is Stephen Cope, who is a best-selling author and scholar who specializes in the relationship between Eastern contemplative traditions and Western depth psychology. His books include Yoga and the Quest for the True Self, The Wisdom of Yoga, The Great Work of Your Life, and his latest book, The Dharma in Difficult Times. And uh, Stephen's also been scholar in residence for many years at the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, the largest center for study and practice of yoga in the West, which brings us to our second guest, who happens to be the chief executive officer at Kripalu, Robert Mulhall. Excuse me, prior to taking on that CEO role, uh, Robert had a broad range of executive positions in profit and nonprofit organizations. He is passionate about service and the link between individual transformation and peace, justice, and freedom in the larger world, something we'll want to talk about. And he's also a certified Kripalu yoga teacher. Welcome, gentlemen. Great to be here, Phil. So um, let's begin, um, take it one at a time. Um, Tell us a bit about your own uh, spiritual journey and how you came to Kripalu in your each of your your separate ways 
You, whoever wants to go first, I'll. Robert, go ahead. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, we... <laughs> I'll have to. I'll have to give you the short version because I'm old and it's a long story. Yeah, be sure. <laughs> yeah, I um, uh, have always been interested in spirituality. I, I grew up in a Protestant family in the Midwest and with with deep roots in the church and the Protestant church in that case. And um, for whatever reason, of the five of us kids, I was the one who, when we traveled in Europe, was always interested in the cathedrals and the spiritual life. And um, so that's that's kind of how I started out. In college, I became a Quaker and then later on an Episcopalian. Um, but when I was in my in graduate school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the um, a long time ago, the 70s and early 80s, that was those were the days when you could kind of find your guru in Harvard Square uh, hanging out. And <laughs> I didn't I did indeed find him in the form of Chugum Trumper Rinpoche, who um had lately decamped from um, from Tibet and ended up at Oxford and became uh, a brilliant scholar who was brilliant at translating uh, Buddhist ancient Buddhist texts and wisdom for the West. So he has a whole slew of really important books, and I I got to know him and his group. Um, they had a, a center in Cambridge, and. I was completely on fire with the Dharma. When I read his books, when I listened to the Dharma, I was so lit up. I was on fire. I was in with both feet for about a decade with that Sangha. Um, at the same time, I um, was interested in yoga because yoga for me was seen then as, as a preparation for meditation. And I was completely sucked into meditation. Um, and uh, at a certain point, I decided I wanted to take a sabbatical leave from my psychotherapy practice. Meanwhile, I'd been through graduate school and I've been trained in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. <clears throat> and at a, at a crossroads in my life, I decided I'm going to take a year off to really dig down into my practice, my meditation, my yoga practice. I actually had my name on the door of a cell at the at a monastery in Cambridge where I was going to go. But a good buddy of mine said, Steve, those monks, they get old and fat and they drink too much and you should go <laughs> to Kripalu because you'll stay healthy there. So, so he took me out to Kripalu. It so happened that Amrit Desai, the spiritual director, was there that weekend. I had an amazing experience of Shakti, of energy that weekend, which I didn't I didn't know what that was at that point, but it stayed with me for quite a while. And indeed, I decided I'd take my sabbatical at Propalo. So I took my name off the door of the monastery of the cell in the monastery. I came to Propalo. And what I found there was uh, a large community. There were 350 of us living there at that time. And this was in 1989. Um, big old Catholic um monastery building, not so old, built in 1954, but housing this remarkable community of contemporary yogis with a fairly remarkable 
head, which whom we call the guru, Amrit Desai, and an, an amazing lineage. And I was completely um, entranced with and enamored with this community because it was full of really smart, engaged, earnest people who were really practicing the whole eight limb path of yoga. And that really appealed to me. And I stayed. I never went back to my psychotherapy practice. Um, I dug in at Kripalu. I was, I think I was helpful and interesting to them because I had a, a background in, in Western psychology. And so I very, very quickly became kind of a pillar of the place. And I ended up spending 33 years there uh, teaching and writing and studying and um, went through many different um, iterations of ashram life. Uh, we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. That's the short version. How about you, Robert? Yeah, so I uh, I think I found my way to Kripalu in a slightly different way, um, in a sense that it wasn't, uh, um, wasn't so much of a direct sort of spiritual calling of like go practice at Kripalu. And even though I'd attended uh, the retreat center in the past, my upbringing was um, very much steeped in a sort of a, a merging of many traditions. The central spine of it was Advaita Vedanta teachings from India, but with a real heavy dose of um, Socrates and Plato and Gurdjieff and uh, the sort of mystical Christian teachings, as well as the Irish Celtic uh, Christian teachings. And all of that um sort of paired with, I, so I had a family that was um, very sort of engaged in that path. And I also went to a, a K through 12 school in Ireland that was very immersed in this, uh, these teachings and bringing them forth as part of an education system. Hmm. And that sort of, that married really well with this young boy who was having some pretty trippy experiences and lucid dreaming at nighttime and having sort of past life flashbacks and all of this kind of stuff. So something just um, clicked very, very deeply for me about this path and it has just unfolded and continued and I've taken a very um, open approach to how I've explored my own personal spirituality. Um, and that has, the goal is to not have that as a separate aspect of my life, but to be life. And then everything else is just an expression of that. And so in that way, as I was working as an organizational consultant and executive coach based out in Colorado, um, Kirpalo came online as a client, and then they asked me to come on board as a full-time member of staff. And so uh -huh. that that's like a career path technically got me to Kirpalo because it's so infused with the spiritual path. It's really both of them. How long have you been there? I've been uh, full-time with Kirpalo for coming up to four years and just over two years as the CEO. Um, how would you, each of you or one of you, uh, describe Kripalu's uh, sort of purpose and mission? Uh, and, and I'll just say that one of the reasons I wanted you both on the show is um, to talk about contemporary yoga. And because I have a, a high regard for, for uh, Kripalu and the work you've done over the Years and now you're you're my neighbor. I live now twenty minutes <laughs> drive from you, and um, and so I, I wanted to talk about uh, contemporary yoga and and the history of of things. Uh, 
But how would you, for people who are not aware of Propala, who've never been to the uh, campus, it's a beautiful location, how would you describe what Kripalu is and what its purpose and mission are if they can be separated? That's a great question for Robert. Yeah, <laughs> and and and, and st I'll give the sort of the official organizational answer, um, which is really true and authentic. Um, Stephen, I know you'll give more of a, maybe you'll have some perfume to add to it. Um, the, like, you know, what's on our website is the purpose of this organization is to ignite personal and societal transformation, knowing that there is no separation, that all things are are bound together in an interconnectedness, that there is then no separation between the individual and collective transformation that is needed in the world. Um, so we hold that as our core purpose. And then, so what is, well, what does that mean? Um, we We really are in the business of connection. And there is a deep and growing sense of disconnection in our world. People are disconnected from themselves and their own inner voice and wisdom. They're disconnected from community and others. They're disconnected from this more than human world and the nature that is all around us and that we are a part of and disconnected from some sense of source, however people hold that. And so we're, we're, working very hard to invite people and i believe the organization has been doing this for its 50 years of existence is inviting people into um, a journey of connection to self to others to nature and to source and moving then away at a cultural paradigm level from uh, uh, this sort of growing story of division uh, which is leading to violence and um, and harm to uh, humanity and to our earth to uh, a story of um, unity and service. Um, and that may sound sort of like these are big words. Uh, I hold them at a very practical level that we can hold a very high idealism for what is possible for our world. And, but that just because it's a high ideal, it doesn't mean it can't be um, really moved forward in a very step-by-step -step way. Good, thanks. Stephen, do you want to uh, add to that? Yeah, just uh, to, to give a big trajectory to this. So we know that in the 70s and 80s, the Eastern contemplative traditions were were um, transmitted to the West. In, and they came in the form of of great teachers, both from the yoga tradition and the, and the Buddhist tradition. And they very often landed here complete with and replete with lots of cultural overlay and context. And um, so when I arrived at Kripalu in 1989, people were still wearing dhotis and saris, and we were still um, doing our satsangs in, in Sanskrit to a certain extent. And a lot of the work has been, has been allowing the tradition to adapt to the needs and the realities of the time and the culture, and slowly let go of some of the cultural trappings which weren't really essential to the the actual practices and begin to what i call excavate these these brilliant traditions um understand them from the point of view of their their classical text the yoga sutra and the bhagavad-gita and the hatha yoga text from the from medieval india and so 
in my 33 years, a lot of our work at Kripalu has been um, has been this work of translation, adaptation, um, and and also growth because we can. When, when these traditions are translated into new cultures, just as when Buddhism was translated into China and, and so forth, they grow and they adapt and they grow all kinds of cool new stuff. So among the cool new stuff we've done is, is we decided we're going to be in the West. We've got to, we have to look at these traditions and the practices from a, a scientific eye. So we've spent a lot of time, energy and money investing in a systematic, scientific, Western paradigm investigation of yoga, its effects, its mechanisms, its long-term effects, and so forth. Um, and, um, you know, looking at uh, uh, the effects of uh, dosing, like um, how much of a dose of this do you need to actually achieve the, the kinds of outcomes that, that we'd like? So that's just my initial response. No, um, and it's uh, it's a, a very important addition that you made. I mean, in, in all my work and research and everything, this notion of adapting uh, to the time and place of, of it, that these teachings, ancient teachings are being brought to is an important part of the story. And all the gurus we're familiar with did it. In, in their own ways and uh, otherwise it could not the trans transmission could not have occurred but now you've mentioned this so I want let's get the elephant uh, in the room taken care of and mm -hmm. let's talk about what transpired at Kripalu um, in the 90s when uh, it went from a guru centered, ashram setting to what it is now a, a nonprofit educational organization and that change was precipitated by a well-known scandal and i'm bringing it up not to be salacious but mm. because i think that um the way kripalu handled it and its subsequent success and transformation is exemplary and uh, has a lot to teach us about um uh, the role of spiritual authorities and ethics and proper, you know, and, and things of that nature that continue to be uh, issues we have to grapple with. Uh, Robert, was you weren't here at that time. Uh, Stephen was. So maybe we'll begin with Stephen in this case. Sure. Well, one thing we know is that when these traditions were transmitted to, to the West, um, they arrived in, in the form often of these extremely charismatic teachers, brilliant, charismatic teachers. And Amr Desai was one of them. Amr Desai was a student of one of the great kundalini yogis of the 20th century, uh, Swami Kripalvananda. And, um, and Kripalu is, is exemplary, and I don't mean that in the sense of perfect, but an example of the kind of trajectory that 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 happened to many of these contemplative traditions as they landed here. What happened, of course, is that the Western, especially Western young people, were so hungry for spirituality of a new kind. Uh, for me, for example, the Protestant church was not doing anything for me at that point. 
and were so taken by the genius of the traditions and and the the human beings who represented them. And so what happened very often was early on the establishment of these highly idealized communities and idealization was the central component of, of that in the early days. We we idealized these teachers from the East. Um, we looked for, with, a, with almost a kind of magical thinking, that being who was all-knowing and all-powerful. And, you know, we'd grown up on the, the New Yorker cartoons of the person climbing to the top of the mountain and meeting the guru. And so we were, we were bowled over by the exoticism and the genius of it. But very often these communities developed a, a profound air of idealization. And a certain number of the teachers who founded communities like Amrit, um, it's very hard not to, when you're surrounded by a group of thousands of people who see you as quasi-divine, not to buy into that just a little bit. Um, anybody who has any unresolved narcissism inside will, may indeed start to buy into some of those projections and those idealizations. And... Um, that's certainly what happened at Kripalu. When I arrived at Kripalu in 1989, um, Amrit Desai had become a major international figure and player. Um, and with good reason, because he was, was and is very smart um, and imbued with, with the, uh, um, the real tradition. He was a real disciple of a real Kundalini Yogi. Um, but this air of idealization was all over the place at Kripalu. Everybody running around dressed in white. And um, the problem with idealization, of course, is it there's there's always a big shadow side to the idealization, right? Um, and so the community began with with that kind of flavor, and then it got deeper and deeper into it. And at a certain point, as with so many of these communities, we're so not alone in this. It's almost standard fare. Um, at a certain point, the unreality of the idealizations led to um, bad behavior. And uh, um, and the shadow began to emerge. You know, Nietzsche always says, whatever whatever aspect of life you banish to the, to the basement or the attic, it will eventually come to you as fate. Right. So it comes to us as fate in the form of, oh, the shadow emerged. You're going to split off sexuality. Um, it's going to emerge somewhere. And it, it, it emerged as a shadow. Um, we had, interestingly enough, a whole series of several years of fascinating um, symposia with some of the great um, up and coming psychotherapists in the in in the the Northeast in Boston mostly. When we started sifting through these idealizations and projections, trying to get behind them, knowing that there was potentially another whole chapter if we could get through that. Um, unfortunately, the whole thing blew up, as is very often the case, and we ended up um, as a result of um, a scandal. Uh, involving mostly improper conduct, um, we ended up asking Amrit to either uh, get some help, some psychotherapy, make some 
financial remuneration and go through a whole process with us. He chose not to do that, but rather to leave. And at that point, we were faced with um, a flood of the people who really idealized him and saw him as God. Those people, by and large, left, right? I wasn't one of those people. I, I, I arrived there when I was 40. I didn't think he was God. I thought he was a, a very clever human being. So there was a small group of us who stayed, and we rebuilt the place as a nonprofit education organization. And I think we did a very good job of incorporating the, the best of the tradition, uh, becoming an organization that was focused on what we used to call group wisdom. So rather than the wisdom coming from on high, from a guru, it emerged out of the group of us who was recreating this, this institution. Um, and so that's, that's probably enough. No, thanks for that overview. That's, that's uh, very important insights that you're bringing to the table and the experience I'm sure is transferable to the, because to this day, you know, I'm, uh, on the board of the Association for Spiritual Integrity. And we get complaints all the time about misbehavior, yeah. especially now there's so many independent teachers. So that's why I wanted to bring this up. Robert, do you want to add anything to that? I think I'd just say that, um, you know, it's it's something that we, uh, we have on, our, you know, we talk about this on our website. We have a sort of a, a little bit of a history timeline visualized at the actual retreat center. It's to the point of Nietzsche's comments about, you know, not sort of hiding this. This is not something that we, that the organization carries shame around. And um, I feel like it's done a lot of its internal work around that. And, um, but it can say this happened um, and here's what we learned from it. And we want to talk to anybody else that might be going through something like that to see what we can share, even though it was, you know, many many years ago nearly 30 years ago at this stage but um that there's uh yeah it feels very important for the organization's authenticity and integrity to uh, be able to speak about this freely as something that that happened and and harm was real harm was caused and um but the organization thankfully is not energetically um stuck in that moment in time Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24 through 26, at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Great. Thank you. Now, let's bring it into the present. Um, <clears throat> you, Robert, are uh, the CEO. You have an executive and managerial responsibility. Uh, it's a nonprofit with very high ideals, but you have to pay the bills and you have to have a coherent organization. Uh, how difficult is it to do justice to the uh, tradition and the ideals you represent and, you know, uh, keep the place afloat, especially, and I'll bring this up 
simultaneously. We're recording this at the beginning of 2023. Kripalu, like other places, retreat centers, entertainment, are, is emerging from the pandemic. Uh, you survived. Many places did not. Um, how difficult is it to, uh, well, I'm mixing up things here, putting aside surviving uh, during the pandemic for a moment, the, the uh, challenge of being financially sound and running a, uh, a good organization, an efficient organization, and the yogic ideals that you represent, is that a, a different kind of challenge for you? And uh, what sort of guiding principles uh, do, you, do you rely on? Um, I, I think it's much easier to run this organization or any organization by following uh -huh. um, these principles. Um, we, when I took over as CEO, I said to the board, I said, you have to be comfortable with the fact that I might be the last CEO of this organization because that was a real reality. Um, as we were in the depths of the pandemic and no sight of opening at all. Um, and what we decided was that um, we were going to open up and we were going to be who we are. And so I went, went back and found the founding articles of incorporation of the organization. And I read the, the sort of the fundamental um, aim that was written there. And we said, great, let's just be who we are. And the world is going to tell us how big or small we need to be. So the world may tell us that we need to be 20 times the size or one-tenth the size, but I would much rather us be who we are and do the work that we're here to do um, than try to be the biggest of anything. And uh, we have a, on the way in and out of the staff entrance into the retreat center, the, um, some beautiful words from the Bhagavad Gita, and I, I paraphrase Stephen, you can help me, but the, you know, it is better to do one's own Dharma imperfectly than the <laughs> Dharma of another perfectly. And Chapter just feels... three, verse thirty-eight. My Thank you both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's it, it's it's been one of the guiding principles. It's like just be who we are, and then can we move? Can we know who we are? What our work is, and then move forward with that with uh, a clarity and a confidence in our voice, and and in our decisions, and in how we want to um, sort of show up in the world. So that has allowed us to lean into the principle, guiding principles of how do we center equity in our organization and in our community? How do we become a radically accessible organization so that people, that this is not, this sort of path of um, uh, liberation is not just for those that have, but is for available to all who seek it. Um, and uh, how do we return Kapalu's clear voice into the center of what we do? Um, and a big part of my job as CEO is to is not necessarily to have a, an individual, an individually generated vision. So a Robert Mulhall vision of what needs to happen here, um, but to um, continuously work, like Stephen said, in the group wisdom, which includes the land that we are stewards of here in the Stockbridge, Monsimo, Mohican unceded territories in the Berkshires to be in a relationship as a group with this land to say, what do you want to have happen here? 
and allowing that to be um allowing that to be coming forward so it's not held by an individual but is held in the field um, and so in some ways that makes my it confuses people when they say what's my vision i say i don't have a personal vision um, um but it uh, makes it feel like it is the roots are spreading much more deeply and much more widely um, in this organization around the work that we're doing right now and the reality is is that post-pandemic you know the the lid has been lifted off pandora's box is open about the incredible um anxiety and stress and uh, real mental health crisis that certainly in the united states we're in but in many westernized countries and um, but also uh like i said a real poverty of connection to uh, community and with this deep division that's happening in in the westernized world at a political level and which is now seeping down to community and family level um how do we how do we really bring forward all of these beautiful traditions that we've been steward of for 50 years to meet these needs and these moments and um, not just focused on sort of i'll say social activism um but uh helping to shift and um, from an inside out from the inside out um so that the people that come to Kapalu are unable to have the healing that they need um, and to go on a transformational journey that always leads people to service. It always leads people to an open-hearted service in the world. And if we can catalyze the 50,000 people that engage with us in person and online uh, every year to do that, I believe there's an opportunity for um, a sort of a wave of um good citizenship that's coming from a coming from the inside um that i then believe will have more sort of a, a sustaining transformation in our world thank you for that uh stephen do you want to uh, amplify anything or elaborate yeah. uh, add to it yeah no that was beautiful robert thank you when when i arrived at Kripalu in 1989 the the goal and purpose and end of Kripalu was always said to be creating safe and sacred space. That is to say, our goal is to create a container which is made up not only of a big, beautiful, comfortable building, but of a tradition, a coherent um, and wise tradition, ancient tradition. Um, there is a there is a, a brilliant um, tradition in the in the contemplative world of an oscillation back and forth between retreat. You go to the mountaintop, you get quiet, you listen inside, you have that experience, you bring it back out into the marketplace. And you know the the Zen ox herding pictures are a beautiful example of this. Right. And so we've always aimed to create this safe and sacred space and be a container for people, whether they're on our campus or whether they're connecting with us as part of a larger worldwide community. Um, interestingly enough, there, there are tensions around that. So when I first came to Kripalu, we were, yoga was very marginal, Buddhism, all of that stuff. Um, it was very marginal. And you told people in 1989 that you were your life was about yoga and they turned to the person on the other side of them to talk. Um, 
in in a certain way that allowed us being marginal allowed us to be a little bit more pure in a sense about our practices and then as as we just sat still on the hill in in lennox yoga became profoundly mainstream right which it is now and that comes with its own temptations and allure and 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 draw i mean we've systematically had to go through all these decisions about you know, vegetarian or not, serving meat. When coffee came in and it was a huge issue, um, <laughs> those are just little, little symbols of what we had to go through. Um, but uh, uh, so there, there's this temptation to get maybe a little wide and end up being not who we are. So when Robert talks about being who we are, that's been a real tension in 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 our organization and any organization like ours, right? Um, we're no longer marginal, we're mainstream. And what does that mean in terms of how authentic and pure to the yoga tradition we can stay? Sorry, Phil, I just add to that, that the Kripalu has always been a pioneer in its DNA. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a piece that we're looking at as well, is what is the pioneering element of our DNA that we want to continue to bring forward? Um, because there's a comfort in being a, an incredibly big tent that allows people to come in and almost have sort of beginner-like experiences sort of over and over again. But that's not, that is not why the organization was set up. And it was, yes, to bring many people into the wide mouth of the funnel, but to, to then encourage and invite them on a journey of deep discovery. And... Um, I believe that the pioneering element in at Kerpalo um, helped with that, and sort of this experimentation that that happened at Kerpalo within the sort of the clarity of the tradition, and so um, that's one of the great things that we do get to do here is we've got this very large campus with uh, hundreds and hundreds of teachers coming through, uh, both Kerpalo teachers and external teachers that come and teach here, that there is a an element of experimentation and pioneering new thought um, to uh, continue to meet the, you know, the 8 billion paths of the mountain. You know, when I moved to Kripalu in 1989, we had a renunciate, a core group of so-called renunciates, right? And these were people who were practicing the depth practices. And there was, there was a sense that, there was a systematic path up the mountain, if you will, put up with that old model paradigm. Um, and, and that these were exemplars of that. Uh, Max Weber always said, and I think so brilliantly, that any wisdom tradition that's going to survive has got to have a, um, a, a, even a small community, a small community that's really practicing the full extent of the death practices and, um, and and teaching them. So when I got there, that that existed. And it's been a real challenge and struggle since those days when that, that left us to um, maintain what Max Weber was talking about, that, that core group of people who are really walking the walk. And, mm. and um, uh, I don't know what Robert would say about that, but... Uh, it's it's something I've always been been interested in in terms of Kapala's future. 
And in my experience, that that tends to be true. I wish I'd paid more attention to Max Weber when I was studying sociology. <laughs> I didn't know he addressed that. But, um, <clears throat> but most successful and ongoing spiritual organizations do, now that you mention it, have that kind of core. They're often monastics, but not, not always. Some of them are householder uh, tradition, yeah. and there's a tension there, I'm sure. But um, that's an interesting observation. Um, I want to, one of the uh, critiques of, of modern yoga as it's, uh, as it's manifested in, in the West, particularly in, in America, uh, is the, uh, the lack of diversity. That it's a, uh, there's so few um, people of color and minority representation uh, in in what most people see uh, in the visible aspects of the yoga studio world, the retreat center world, uh, the meditation communities. Um, Robert, you alluded to that, uh, but um, what can a place like Kripalu do to... Uh, open these teachings up to people who um, might want to avail themselves of it, but are not, <clears throat> not necessarily find it accessible. Mm -hmm. So over the last um, three, four years, the organization has been building on work that it's done historically into um, really looking at its own internal culture and how welcoming it is and Kapal has always held this stance of you know we're very well everybody's welcome um, but and the reality is is that not everybody felt welcome even though everybody was welcome mm -hmm. and so when George Floyd's murder um sort of hit hit the media and people uh, something awakened um in sort of uh, in a bigger way in the mainstream consciousness around what was happening in this country a lot of people and a lot of conversations I was in with other organizations, they were saying, how are we going to diversify our audience? And we decided that that wasn't going to be our first step. We decided that we were going to go turn, go back inside and look at ourselves and say, what, is, what are we doing that are creating barriers to access for people? So we've gone on a, um, a multi-year journey doing a lot of deep work with an amazing uh, uh, partners, um, Race and Resilience is the name of the organization. Michelle Johnson and Terry Kelly have been guiding us through this work, working the board all the way down to all staff members. And so we've done training. There's trainings happening, uh, more trainings happening next week um, in all of this work. So we can sort of set a foundational understanding in the organization around this work and why it's so deeply important. Um, we've set up an equity team on the board and in the staff, and they're, they're rolling out a beautiful plan. We've released a very strong um, statement around our stance and our commitment to centering equity in the organization. And we feel now we're in a place where we can start to say we have built some of the right um, ground for uh, a greater sense of welcoming. And so now we're turning out and saying, okay, how do we bring, how do we say to people we're available? So we're looking right now, we're looking at uh, some of our bathrooms and our restrooms and how do we create more 
uh, gender neutral restrooms, as an example. Uh, we're also constantly looking at um, accessibility for people um, with different physical abilities. Mm. Um, uh, and the big one that everybody's talking about is, is about sort of racial accessibility and racial diversity. And um, we've been uh, focusing on that in a few ways. So we set internal targets, literally percentage targets for how many of our programs were going to be run by black, indigenous and people of color. So when the pandemic hit and we went online, we said, look, we've never been able to do this in the building. Mm -hmm. uh, but online, as we said, we're going to be different. So let's just do it and roll the dice and risk kind of risk it all, because to be honest, there wasn't a whole lot to lose and we didn't know where we were going. Mm -hmm. And so we said we were going to have 25 percent of our programs were going to be led, co-led by people of color. Um, uh, for our online work and we were able to excel and exceed those program that target and now as we open back up or have opened back up we have a much higher volume of programs so we're now setting a target of uh, for this coming year 10 percent of our programs are being um, led by BIPOC teachers and that's a target that we will hit and in addition to that we've been inviting in um, we're taking a stance of generosity. So to be as generous as we possibly can, where we can be for as long as we can be. And um, so we are uh, creating financial accessibility by inviting, um, this year we'll be helping to serve 5,000 people through full scholarships, mm. both at the retreat center online. And that's a much bigger jump than we've ever done in the past. We're also running a program called Activist in, in Residence where people who are, uh, many of these folks are people of color, but not all, are people that are out there in the world doing incredible service um, as whether they're part of a group like Black Lives Matter or they're part of an environmental stewardship group or, or uh, they're on the front lines of something. And these folks give, 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 very rarely feel that they can slow down, stop and ask for help. So we are sort of imposing our help in an inviting way and saying, you can come to Kripalu for five days as our guests. You can come here and go to your room and sleep for five days, or you can engage in all of the programming that we have to offer as a way for you to um, resource yourself again, to go back out into the world, to not wow. just hopefully band-aid the problems, but actually to be in part of ongoing systems change. And there's many other initiatives, but there's that's a flavor of how we're sort of looking at this. What we're noticing is, is that is all of this is sending out these ripple effects and it's sending a message to people saying, oh, Kripalu is a place where I can come and, and I can be in a room and I can see a yoga teacher who looks like me and I can be in the cafeteria and see folks that look like me. Um, and we have a lot more work to do, but we've made good strides and we're starting to notice the positive ripples of that. That's fascinating. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um because one thing for a yoga studio in Santa Monica or uh, Greenwich Village to um, open its doors to diversity, you're up here in the Berkshires. It's not as easily accessible. It's expensive to get here and all that. So what you're doing sounds really resourceful and, and commendable. Uh, and I guess online opens it up in, in a ways that uh, make it uh, possible. Stephen, did you want to add to that? I would. Um, there's a great paradox in all this in, in the sense that 
the yoga tradition itself is is quintessentially pluralistic. The whole the whole notion that right. you know, the whole world is one family, as Swami Prapala, that was his that was his motto, really. The the this you know the the more advanced practices of yoga lead to this experience called samapati or coalescence, which is the the deep inner knowledge that all sentient beings are made of the same stuff, right? Samapati, we're all made of the same stuff. So um, the tradition invites this kind of openness and supports it in in every way. You know, Gandhi Gandhi discovered that when he was setting up his ashram in India. And, and you know, some people didn't want him to invite in in uh, Muslims or untouchables. And he was like, no, no, that's absolutely wrong. So um, so we have we have uh, as our foundation this tradition that is profoundly pluralistic, as I said. And, in, and inclusive. Uh, uh, some, I want to get back to something Robert mentioned uh, a little while ago, this program of offering Propalu's resources for inner development and well-being to people who are outer-oriented, the activists of the world. Because when we think of um, the role of yoga and uh, the inner sciences in uh, social activism or social responsibility, we think inside out. But the reverse is also true that people who are active and dedicated to service often lack an inner life and, and the, uh, the sustenance that that brings, uh, which brings us uh, to... Um, I'd be remiss as a as a fellow author to not give Stephen the opportunity to discuss his latest book. Uh, but the Dharma in difficult times speaks to that and both sides of that issue. Do you want to speak a little bit about the book, uh, Stephen, and uh, what you uh, your purpose in writing it and what the essential a message is here in this context we're discussing. Sure. So the you know the the book is really a look at the way in which the Bhagavad Gita, the Song of God, one of the very most important scriptures of of the yoga tradition, um, has been uh, absolutely essential to the project of confronting racism and fear of the other all the way from Thoreau to Martin Luther King Jr., including Gandhi and many other people all along the way from 1830 when Thoreau picked it up at, um, in, in Concord to, to the present day. And so at the very heart of the Gita is this notion that it's called the vision of sameness. We're all made of the same stuff again. Um, and I, I just look at the way in which that yogic text um, has been a, a powerful force in moving the world um, toward that much more open and inclusive view. Um, I just briefly, I sketch out eight different characters uh, that begin with, with Thoreau and, and with Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and look at the way in which 
the Gita and the values of the yoga tradition have influenced their action in the world. Um, and it's they're, they're as diverse as, as Sojourner Truth and, you know, Marin Anderson and uh, Harry Beecher Stowe. And um, I'm always amazed when I dig into these characters of great import in the world how they've been touched by the Gita and the Gita's teachings and the Gita's philosophy and, and therefore been touched by yoga. You know, I wrote a whole book on this, as you guys know, I, and okay. I did not know Harriet Beecher Stowe or uh, Sojourner Truth had any con yeah. connection to the yoga tradition. Yeah. They did. Uh, and how did you discover them? Well, I mean, in, in the case of those two, not explicitly, more ah. explicitly in the case of, of a Thoreau and a Martin oh, Luther King right. and a Gandhi. Um, but they were influenced. I mean, Harry Beecher Stowe with, with, lived concurrently with Thoreau and was influenced by that. Uh, yeah. um, I also tell the story of Charles Russell Lowell, who at Harvard in 1850 did read the Gita and was profoundly influenced by the notion of, of duty. So yeah, with with Stowe and Sojourner Truth, not so much directly, but more indirectly. Oh, yeah. good. I'm, I'm, now I feel better about you. Didn't miss that, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> but um, let's. I want to expand on that a little bit because uh, in discussing the uh, the the call to take seriously our role as citizens and making you know the world a better place. Um, in the past, I, I often encountered, and I'm sure you did too, resistance from people in the spiritual, different spiritual communities who say, you know, no, 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 that that's all illusory. Uh, don't want to get brought down by, you know, the problems of the world. I want to rise above it. I want to transcend all that. I'm just going to focus on my inner life and being a better person. Um, but the core text of the tradition, the Gita, I always say, <laughs> it, it, there's a reason it stood the test of time. And one of the reasons is Krishna doesn't tell Arjuna, yeah, you have a big problem here. You're about to, you know, have a war to fight. Just go live in a cave. Right. <laughs> he doesn't say that. He says, do your duty as a yeah. warrior, but first be a yogi. Yeah. And Absolutely. so I, I mean, Krishna brings forward this radical notion to us that, you know, we're we're such a narcissistic culture. We're completely wrapped up in ourselves in so many ways and in personal fulfillment, right? And Krishna introduces this other idea, which is that real personal fulfillment is impossible without an open door and an eye to the common good. That's a radical notion that we can't be fully who we are as human beings if we're not attending um, both to the, this, this false dichotomy between personal fulfillment and the common good is, is laid bare, right? The fact is that human beings are quintessentially pro-social beings. We're social beings. And so we achieve our full humanness when we 
pay attention to our duty in the world. Um, and, you know, Phil, I've been teaching. So my first book on the Gita was The Great Work of Your Life. And that was much more about, shall we say, about personal fulfillment. So when I teach this core as a course, um, I ask three questions. The first one is to, to the group. Okay, what's lighting you up right now, right? Um, you know, what's this is follow your bliss. This is Joseph Campbell. What's lighting you up? Dude, everybody loves that question and has no problem spending half an hour journaling on it. Then I say, okay, we're going to change the color of the water slightly. Now here's this next question. What do you feel is your duty in the world right now? What's calling you as duty changes the color of the water totally. And people really have to wrestle with that whole notion of duty. Um, I've come to believe that duty is that thing which if you do not do it in this lifetime, you'll feel a profound sense of self-betrayal. Mm -hmm. So duty is called, Cicero, gives us, Cicero gave us five sources of duty. And the first one is simply by virtue of the fact that we're human beings. Simply by virtue of the fact that we're human beings, we're called to certain things. We're called to a concern for the common good. Um, so, yeah, it's a really interesting tension right now. And it's so curious, Phil, because as an author, you'll appreciate this. Um, my book, Dharma in Difficult Times, is not selling well at all. And and I figure people don't really want to hear about their duty. <laughs> uh, so it's it's just curious. Well, I do relate, Stephen. Uh, and <laughs> as you were telling, uh, talking about what lights you up, I remembered something I included in my version <laughs> of your book, Spiritual yeah. Practice for Crazy Times, uh, where I quote the uh, great theologian Howard Thurman, who was a, a mentor to Martin Luther King, in this yeah. context. So I, I'm, I'm going to read it. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. That's right. And so you're in good company with that one. Um, Robert, uh, I'm going to give you the last word as the CEO. Um, what would you like people to know uh, about uh, Kripalu moving forward into this uh uh, new year and uh, the new life, post-pandemic life of Kripalu, how can they avail themselves of what you you have to offer and what would you like to leave them with? Yeah, I, I, I just before that, the, just on the last point, um, I bet good money that the, um, the people that are defaulting to what I'll call a sort of a spiritual bypass of the reality of this world um, are people who have a level of comfort that 99% mm. um, of the rest of the world do not have. And that's not right, a judgment right. of them. They're so blessed to have that comfort. Yeah. But uh, one of my favorite spiritual teachers is Adya Shanti, and he says, when a person is starving on the street, don't give him a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. Get him food, get him shelter, yeah. get him yeah. safety. And then you can start to talk about the Bhagavad Gita if the person's interested. Right. And um, this idea that, uh, that this is all an illusion. We live, this whole thing is a paradox. And it's, uh, you know, it is both uh, full of utter beauty and full of utter pain. 
and um, the holding this is just an illusion and that mm. there aren't needs in this world that need to be met is, uh, um, for me, it invokes a lot of emotion and it invokes, um, it's a terrifying idea and that lives mm. in the spiritual world. And it's as, uh, I feel it's as harmful to the what's happening in the spiritual world as is the what's happened around the sort of commodification of these beautiful traditions that have been brought forward and the sort of turning yoga into um, what, what it is now held in, in most of the westernized world. And um, I hope we can, um, through Kripalu and through many other places, that we can continue to uh, burst those bubbles because they're just, they're not helpful. And that's my personal opinion. Uh, but for Kripalu, um, you know, we are open and alive and vibrant. And the beautiful thing is, is that by uh, uh, aligning with these yogic principles and how we're leading the organization, it actually seems to be working. But there's a, this organization that has done well um, and continues to be excited about this year ahead. Uh, so we encourage anybody that feels called to come here and in person on the Berkshires and find hundreds of programs that we offer which is all available on our website and um, but then also if you're if you're in uh in you're in alaska or you're in china you can access what's on offer online which is just incredible we have people now engaging with Kripalu in all 50 states and 60 countries around the world because of what we offer online um, and then i'll say is if you go on the Kripalu website or and um, you see it and you say gosh this doesn't resonate with me but i'm still searching for something keep searching and go somewhere else go do it somewhere else it doesn't have to be a kapalo it's much more important it's not what's much more important is that people are are engaging in this work and not that kapalo is surviving um it'd be wonderful if both of those things happen at the same time though <laughs> well it's in good hands um i really appreciate your both of you coming on and uh all the good work you're doing and i, I wish you the best and i look forward to uh participating in it to the whatever degree I can as a new neighbor down the street. Um, <clears throat> listeners, thank you for joining us. Uh, check out uh, Kripalu online. Check out Stephen's books and his website. Um, tell your friends about Spirit Matters podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss a show. Uh, email me your suggestions, uh, read my books, check out my programs online, visit my website, subscribe to my mailing list, and uh, do all the other things I shamelessly am promoting. And, <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. And thanks, Robert and Stephen. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Karen Debbie Smith, and Meredith Tolleson. 
We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.